0: From the McCourney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Candace Wadsmith.
1: I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome back to our spring 2022 season. We have with us today for our first episode of the season, Jim Piazza, liberal arts professor of political science here at Penn State, author of a new paper in Political Research Quarterly called "Sore Losers, Does Terrorism and Approval of Terrorism Increase in Democracy When Election Losers Refuse to Accept Election Results? Jim's name might sound familiar to some of you. He was on the show less than a year ago talking with us about domestic terrorism and the paper (laughs) that he recently published. There's also a companion article in The Conversation that we'll link to in the show notes also. But I think it's important to talk about this idea of sore losers and the transition of power as we both reflect on the one-year anniversary of the insurrection at the Capitol, and also look ahead to the midterms this year and the next presidential election in 2024.
0: Jim's argument, which draws heavily on democratic theory, and I know you're going to draw this out in the interview, is essentially that the peaceful transition of power, which requires the loser of an election to concede, is absolutely critical to a democracy and for a democracy to be able to avoid domestic violence of different types. This is sort of the point where Jim begins his argument. You know, Some people may think back to Al Gore conceding his election after the Supreme Court made its decision in 2000. <laughs> Gore you know, was very clear and said, I disagree with the Supreme Court here. I still think I won, <laughs> essentially. But he conceded because he recognized the importance of conceding to a healthy democracy. And so one reason I think Jim's work is so helpful is that it takes us away from just focusing too much on January 6th, actually. and put it in larger context of something which began before the election, and that is a systematic effort to undermine public confidence in the result of the election and the role that political elites are playing in doing this. Because if political elites weren't doing it, it wouldn't be able to have the power and effectiveness that it does. And of course, this is, uh, you know, Jim's point in his research is when you see this in democracies, it can easily lead to violence.
2: And so what Jim talks about, the loser's consent, also speaks to just kind of the informal norms of making a democracy work that is just as important as what is written on the Constitution, on state constitutions, legally Trump didn't have to concede. We didn't need him to do that legally to move to the next step. But the norm of the concession is so important to ensure that the winners and the losers are on the same page about the integrity of the election and the state of democracy. So I do think that he is in full recognition of the significance of the concession. And by not doing so, Right. He is able to keep alive the idea that we have a problem, that the way that our elections are run are unfair and that the outcomes of the election are illegitimate.
0: I think that's really well put about the importance of the loser's consent and that norm. And we've talked a lot ever since the book How Democracies Die came out about sort of this issue of norms and guardrails and their importance. And, you know, I think we're seeing clearly here what happens when norms are just violated in the way that Trump is. Because how do you get them back? One way norms can sometimes be restored is by codifying them. In other words, putting Mm -hmm. them into law. But that's gonna be a really difficult thing to do here. And Trump and others around him have made it clear that there are absolutely no institutional mechanisms that, that run our elections or rule on our elections that they will accept. So how do you restore this norm? I don't think you can. And what Jim's work, as you get into talking about it with him, will, will demonstrate is that this is really important, that, that this sets a democracy on a very dangerous path. And of course, we already saw it. <laughs> I mean, January 6th was violence related to the refusal to accept the result of an election.
2: And, you know, I think that there are folks, journalists, colonists, who are just like, you guys are being dramatic. But it really doesn't take that big of a proportion of citizens or elites to really get things off the rail, given how much being on the rails is around norms. It's just doing what we kind of implicitly agree to do to to keep things going.
0: Yeah, especially among elites, Candice. I mean, I think this is something that we're seeing in our present moment that's really important in that this is not simply something that's being promoted by people or by groups. This is being promoted by elected political leaders. And when you see that, that's highly problematic. you know. And in countries that, that could potentially have really seen significant violence where political leaders are willing to kind of try to avoid it and restore norms and work in a democratic fashion, you can avoid that. Well,
1: I think that Does a good job of of laying out some of the the case that Jim's making here and, and why it's important to talk about right now. So let's go now to the interview with Jim Piazza. Jim Piazza, welcome back to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us.
3: Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
1: You have long studied terrorism and political violence. We had you on the show last year to talk about some of those things and and domestic terrorism in particular, but you are joining us today to talk about a new... Article that you just published in Political Research Quarterly that overlays some of these themes in terrorism and political violence with the concept of the peaceful transition of, of power and and what you describe as sore losers and some of those themes. So before we get to some of the specifics of your piece, can you just talk a little bit about where this this idea came from? How you sort of came up with the notion of overlaying domestic terrorism or terrorism more broadly with this idea of the loser's consent in democracy?
3: Sure. Happy to. Yeah. So among people who study terrorism, a big topic is whether or not democracies experience more terrorism. Is there something about democracy that pacifies political extremism that could turn to violence? Or on the other hand, are autocratic regimes better equipped to deal with violent extremism because they can just crush dissent. So there's actually a pretty big literature about that. There's a lot of people that have written a lot about that, used a lot of case studies, uh, used a lot of data and that kind of stuff. That's that's a pretty well-developed literature. No one has really written anything about what happens when you have an election and things don't go as they're intended to go in terms of how democracy works. No one's kind of looked at that. And I actually, I guess I kind of think of that in the context of a much wider observation that I've had in the past five years. And that is how much like norms of behavior really matter for the functioning of political systems. And if you think about the United States, the constitution lays out and our laws and legal structure lay out the basics of how democracy works and how democracy sustains itself and lends stability to the system, but not everything norms of behavior, ways of behaving, for example, the norm that a political party, if it runs an election and it loses, it agrees to lose, right? Something that we take for granted so much, that's critical for the security and the stability of the system. And when it's gone, we have these pretty bad effects. Well, political scientists really haven't studied that either, at least in my neck of the woods. And so I wanted to look at what happens when political parties, I generally want to know what happens when political parties kind of don't Agreed to abide by the not only the formal but the informal rules of democracy.
1: We are recording this on January 7th, 2022. So, one day after the January 6th, one year anniversary. And I, I think that that is certainly for a lot of people, one, it maybe brought this idea of, of what happens when people don't accept a loss that sort of brought that right to the fore. But there's another example, perhaps related, that you talk about people who had planned to. Bomb the California Democratic Party headquarters. Uh, I I don't remember this in the news, and you know, things pass by so quickly in our our news cycle these days. Can you talk about that and and how it might fit into this larger argument that you're making here?
3: Right. So, if, if for people that don't know, after the 2020 election in November, and after former President Trump refused to concede and said that the election was fraudulent and that he had really won, and 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 after that became sort of like a big talking point in right-wing circles, That kind of percolated out, and there were these two men that were in California, Marin County of all places in California, that were very radicalized and angered by their perception that there was fraud in the 2020 election, and that Joe Biden really had won the election, Trump really had won the election, but Trump was being unfairly denied this, and so they concocted a plot. They talked with each other. It was was truly a homegrown terrorism plot. They had not, to my knowledge at least, not been involved in violent extremism in the past. They talked to each other. They did connect through social media with another like militia group. But to my knowledge, that's the only extent they had connections with any other potentially destabilizing actors. And they concocted this plan and they started to put into motion this plan to bomb the Democratic Party's headquarters in California. And thankfully, the reason this has not been a widespread story is that they were foiled. They were actually caught by federal officials and the Justice Department is prosecuting them now. And so I use that as sort of just a a story to talk about what can happen when political parties refuse to accept an election loss.
1: This story in California was an example of, of what you refer to as the loser's consent or a lack thereof, perhaps in this case. But can you just kind of lay out for us what you mean by that loser's consent, where that norm kind of originates in democracy?
3: Yeah. And it's absolutely critical to democracy. And so the concept of loser's consent, it's actually pretty well known. It's been talked about quite a bit among scholars who study most, you know, functioning democracies, right? And want to understand what a functioning democracy requires. And it kind of gets to the heart of what you're talking about in terms of like a norm of behavior. And so what loser's consent means is that one of the things that a democracy needs in order to thrive is when it holds elections, elections are inherently unpredictable things, right? And a real democracy you don't know who the winner is going to be. Either side plausibly could win. In non-democracy, you know what the outcome is going to be before the election. It's a sham, right? But in a democracy, and this is true in 2020, it was equally plausible that Trump or Biden could win, right? What communicates to partisan supporters of a candidate and what is necessary to communicate to the wider society after an election is held is that it was a fair and free and clean election. And one of the strongest ways that that is communicated is when the loser of the election concedes and says, "We fought the good fight. It wasn't enough. I'm proud of what we did. See you next time. I want to congratulate my opponent." Even what they're saying there is, "I don't agree with my opponent. I have a, oftentimes have a diametrically opposed policy idea about how the country should be run, but." It was a free and fair fight. So I think about this with the 2016 election, right? As bitter and nasty and contested that election was, Hillary Clinton, the Democratic nominee, conceded. And what she was telling Democrats who voted for her, Republicans who didn't vote for her, and the wider society is that democracy prevailed, right? that's something called loser consent. The idea that democracy is a system in which parties agree to lose elections. I think Adam Zivorsky who's a pretty famous political scientist who studies comparative politics, famously said in his book, Democracy in the Market, you need to have parties agree to lose elections. If they won't agree to lose elections, free and fair elections, then you are destroying the norms that govern democracy. And you're really also sending a message to your supporters in the wider society, that election results can't be trusted, that the system can't be trusted, that they should be aggrieved. It polarizes, it divides society in important ways. I think that we're seeing all of that. I think that's pretty kind of obvious.
1: People say a lot of things. People think a lot of things. People like to grouse and all of that. How do you get from that to political violence or terrorism?
3: So the research that I've done – hasn't zeroed in on that actual mechanism. And that's crucial to do. That's crucial to do. It's just, this is a a preliminary cut. Mm -hmm. I kind of have some ideas from what the literature says about that. And I kind of sort of say, I mean, number one, how do you get from a politician refusing to concede, refusing the legitimacy of an election, refusing to accept a loss to political violence? And I sort of conjecture that there are sort of three things that are happening when that happens and they could be happening in tandem or they could be happening separately number one is of course you have supporters in the wider public that grow very distrustful of political institutions and political rules and that kind of stuff and so you have a scenario you have a situation under which people they don't trust any official information they don't trust any official count of votes you know they just believe that the that the system is compromised they believe the system is very very corrupt and once that happens we do know that in societies where rule of law is weak or where there's like not trust in political institutions those are societies in which you're going to have a lot more terrorism there's quite a bit of literature showing that for example newly transitioned democracies that don't have very tested political institutions and people know that they experience more terrorism than any other type of system Established democracies typically experience lower levels of terrorism. Mm -hmm. Established autocracies do as well. It's the newer or the weaker democracies that are the ones that are kind of the most prone to terrorism. That would be consistent with that. The second sort of component is just grievances. And we know that's a pretty vague term. But When people are just really fed up, two things happen. Number one is someone who engages in terrorism is less likely to be met with pushback. I mean, terrorism usually is a pretty controversial thing. It's a, it's a type of behavior that typically people condemn. But if you put a big, thick layer of grievance over society, kind of anything goes. You can imagine an actor out there saying, given the environment and the mood, I can commit a terrorist attack and I won't have the same level of backlash or sanction that I normally would have. Also, it becomes a little bit easier for people to become more marginally supportive or endorse terrorist activity, right? And terrorist activity is a pretty marginal thing. You don't need a lot of people to be radicalized to sustain a terrorist movement. Certainly, you don't need a majority of people. I mean, it just it could be a fringe thing and still be a problem. And the third thing is polarization. The third thing is that it does create this us and them situation. You know, when you have losers, consent is essential to bringing together the partisan supporters of the losing side back with. The partisan support is the winning side, and that doesn't happen when you have an election loser that rejects it. and And I've done some research showing that politically polarized societies are much, much more likely to experience terrorist activity.
1: So you set out in this paper to take a deeper look at this and actually try to quantify it. So you know, walk us through kind of how you did it, what the hypotheses were that you were looking to prove or, or to disprove.
3: Sure. So because my focus is really not necessarily only American politics, it's politics in other countries or global politics. I wanted to sort of see if this was a general cross-national phenomenon. I wanted to look at it two ways. I wanted to look at it in terms of attitudes and outcomes. And so I looked at some survey data from what's called the World Values Survey. The World Values Survey WVS it's a really great resource. Academics use it quite a bit. You know, political commentators sometimes use it as well. Media uses it as well. It's a, a free open access. Anyone can use it. It is a, a series of surveys in multiple countries. And I looked at the ones in the democracies for the more recent years. And it asked people all types of questions about themselves and about what they think about politics. And one of the questions they asked in the most recent Wave 7 of the World of Values Survey is... Attitudes about terrorism, how justifiable and how acceptable it is. So I use that data to sort of see is it the case in countries and democracies where there was a free and fair election? And most importantly, where external experts have judged the election to be free and fair, to be properly. I didn't, I mean, obviously I didn't want to have situations in which there really kind of was fraud in the sample. I only looked at countries, democracies, where experts had judged that the election was clean. And where the one or more of the political parties that were contesting election rejected the results, said, we're not going to abide by the results. And I wanted to see what that did to political attitudes. And as you can see in the paper, it increases the public tolerance of terrorism. People in democracies where there's a free and fair election without fraud, nonetheless, political parties who are contesting the election claim that it was unfair, all of a sudden tolerance goes up for terrorist activity, right? nowhere because it become a majority opinion but it's worrisome how much it increases and then also i looked at a wide range of countries over 100 democracies from the years 1970 to 2016 or 2017 or something like that and i looked at does more domestic terrorist activity actually occur subsequently in countries in democracies where there's a free and fair election judged to be free and fair by outside experts but where major political parties would not accept the results. And lo and behold, there is an increase in terrorist activity. And this is holding constant, I mean, the already existing level of terrorist activity within the country, economic factors, demographic factors, and everything else.
1: And so what did you find?
3: I found that in democracies where all of the losing parties accepted the election results of a free and fair election... About 9.2% of people said that terrorism is acceptable or justifiable on some level, right? That's kind of, you know, that that's not great here, but it's less than 10% of the population. It's still a marginal belief. That level of acceptance, the percentage of people that say terrorism is acceptable as a behavior rises to 27% if the main opposition parties say they reject the results. And if all the losing parties reject the results, it's it's a third of the population of the country that then says, terrorism is a more acceptable behavior. And that's mirrored in actual terrorist activity. In democracies where all of the losing parties after the election accepted the results and extended losers' consent to the system publicly, those kind of countries experience a domestic terrorist attack about once every two years, right? That's a relatively low rate. That number jumps to five terrorist attacks per year, if the main opposition parties rejected the results. And if all of them reject the results, it goes to 10.6 terrorist attacks per year. So it's a pretty dramatic increase.
1: Yeah. And you you were talking earlier about this behavior, these patterns tending to occur more frequently in newer democracies versus more established ones. But thinking about established democracies, are there any examples from elsewhere in the world that you can point to that might help us understand some of what we're seeing now in the U.S., or, you know, might just just be helpful as we're trying to understand this current moment.
3: Yeah, so it is true. One of the things I kind of worried about when I did the analysis is, well, am I just kind of picking up this new democracy, untested democracy effect? So I did try to, like, include things in my analysis that would, like, look at, like, the age of the democracy and that kind of stuff to make sure that that wasn't the case, right? And so what I actually do find is that this increase in activity you do see across different types of uh, ages of democracy. It's not just the new democracies mm-hmm. that are sort of experiencing this. So where do you see more of that when you have sort of like an uncontested election, right? One of the things I saw was that in Spain in the 1980s, I believe there's a pretty bitter election between the Spanish socialists and the, and the conservatives and one of the parties refused to concede and there was more terrorist activity afterwards. And, and and there was sort of an increase in that, right? Now that said, I think more investigation needs to be done. I think the public like, next step in this research would be just to isolate countries that are just the established democracies mm-hmm. or just countries that most closely approximate what you're seeing in the United States. Mm-hmm. I think the next step would be to look at either historical examples in the United States that look like what we're in right now, or examples in other countries like the I mean, Western European countries, for example, mm-hmm. like the United States, where you would sort of see more, you would be able to do a more closer approximation.
1: I know Jim that you have also done or, or are currently working on research that drills a little bit more specifically into supporters of former President Trump based on some public opinion work that you did that I think gets at some of these same themes can can you tell us a little bit about that project and and what you found so far
3: thank you I, I, there's been a lot of research that has come out a lot of polling data that shows, in addition to the fact that a startlingly large number of Americans believe or say that they think that the 2020 election was fraudulent and, and Joe Biden was not the winner of that election, a relatively startling number of Americans also say that they think political violence is acceptable, right? Now, this number really varies depending on the survey, and that's because it depends on what you're asking people, right? Right. And there's a whole dispute about when you ask people, do they support political violence? Oftentimes, they're not hearing the same thing that you're asking them, right? Sometimes they might mean things like, well, destruction of property or disorderly behavior versus like murdering somebody, right? But most of the polling seems to suggest between, let's say, like 20 to like 30% of Americans, depending on how you ask them, tolerate at some level political violence. They'll say that political violence is acceptable under certain circumstances, to send the government a message, to fight for American values, whatever the justification is. right? And in some of those more recent polls, people who approve of Donald Trump or support Donald Trump are more likely to say that, are more likely to support political violence. So we we didn't understand necessarily why that was the case. And Mm -hmm. so we wanted to look more into that. And so we did an analysis. We did the survey. We launched the survey thing. And we looked at over 2,000 respondents in the United States, all over 18 years old, from all parts of the country, Democrats and Republicans. And what we're finding is this: that Trump supporters are statistically more likely to evince support for political violence. That is not true of ordinary Republicans, though. If you, if you separate Republicans versus people who support Trump, who include Republicans and some people who are also independents, it really is the Trump supporters, irrespective of party, I know that sounds kind of strange, irrespective of mm-hmm. party, that are more likely to say that they support violence. Then we want to know why this is the case. So we asked a lot of other questions about what their attitudes were, and we tested a couple of these. One was this idea of maybe they're politically aggrieved. Maybe they just think, well, it's tied back to this idea that they don't trust the political system, they don't trust political institutions. We also looked at economic grievances. So there's just been a big sort of discussion about whether or not what kind of drives some of this more extreme political behavior in the United States and attitudes is that these people are economically hurting. We looked at extreme partisanship or polarization. There's a really interesting literature. Sometimes it's called political polarization. Sometimes it's called effective polarization polarization. Mm-hmm social polarization, political sectarianism, political tribalism. It's just this idea that politics is a team sport. You're on this one team or tribe. And what's most important, what's most salient to your identity is your hatred for the other tribe, right? So your feelings of dislike people outside your tribe are greater than your feelings of love for your tribe and your, or your belief in their policies. And then finally, we wanted to also look at racism and xenophobia. And the one that comes out the strongest as a thread that links Trump approval to tolerance of political violence is race, xenophobia and racism. And it's quite clear that that's sort of the case. The other ones just didn't come in as well. I mean, actually, none of them did. it wasn't necessarily the case that Trump supporters are necessarily more economically aggrieved, and that's why they support more violence, politically aggrieved to our supply. We also looked at distrust of public institutions like government and media, I would have thought that would have made a difference. We, we're we not seeing that yet as an important thing. It really is a fear of demographic change in the United States, our growing diversity in the United States, if it's racial diversity or greater immigration, and so on. And this is something that, in in some ways, I, I find it very interesting, right? It's something that is consistent with other things that have been found in the literature. Mm-hmm.
1: We will, I'm sure, pick up this thread or, you know, maybe have you back on again, whenever that paper is, is ready to come out. I know it's still in process, so we don't want to say too, too much about it at this point, but going back to this, the sore losers, was there anything else that you wanted to, to add about that or, or anything that you think is important for listeners to take away from that work?
3: I really have come around to believing that reinforcement of norms of Trust in our democratic system, reinforcing norms of responsible, trustworthy behavior of politicians, and trust of each other is just absolutely critical to the survival of our democracy. We have to have it. You know, I mean, the truth of the matter is you look, at, you look forward in the future, Democrats are going to win elections in the future, and Republicans are going to win elections in the future. We're looking at 2020, 2022. Anyone can win control of the House of the Senate. You know, the Democrats could retain control of the House and the Senate. Republicans could lose it, right? In 2024, I, I don't know that I can prognosticate who was going to win. That's what democracy is all about. It's an, inherently uncertain. I think Jaborski says the election process is an institutionalization of political uncertainty, right? And that is the best chance we have at trying to have orderly politics in the United States, right? And I think there's real consequences to destroying the trust associated with that. I mean, I was surprised at how clear the results came out with this. But I mean, I'm I'm not surprised, I guess, that that's a reality.
1: Well, Jim, we will link to both your article in Political Research Quarterly and to your companion piece in The Conversation so folks can learn more and, and digest some of this on their own. But thank you so much for joining us today to talk about it.
3: Thank you so much. I appreciate being on.
2: Thank you, Jenna, for that excellent interview with Jim. I want maybe to pull maybe a millennial move and just mention some (laughs) things that were quite triggering for me in this interview. One of the things that stood out to me about how do you move from the lack of losers' consent to political violence, and Jim kind of points out three things. He says, you know, if supporters are distrustful of political institutions or political rules, Political violence can arise in societies where the rule of law is weak or where there's not trust in political institutions, and then polarization. And these, I think, are three things that are, if not already true in the United States, are becoming more and more true as we move along. And so, again, to our point about whether people are just kind of um, being dramatic Folks who study democratic backsliding, terrorism, civil war, democratic erosion, they find that when we see these patterns, we see the loss of democracy and we see the increase for political violence. So I think it's really important for us to kind of behoove these warnings, given that we have the the elements, we have the components that can produce a particular recipe for political
0: violence. And Actually, authoritarian regimes are quite effective at restricting political protest, at restricting Mm -hmm. political violence, at restricting terrorism. And democracies, strong democracies, because they allow so much pluralist inclusion and participation in the political system, are also able to withstand and not really be subject to excessive political violence. But the ones that are most at risk are the ones that are slipping or moving one way from the other. Mm -hmm. Moving from more democratic to less or less democratic to more. And the thing about the American system right now is by almost every measure, I'll say by every measure I've seen from people that do this kind of work, we are slipping. And we have, you know, whether you're looking at polity or VDEM or something else, we have moved, you know, some number of points from a strong democracy to something else. And I think Jim's work and others is saying this is a very dangerous sort of sweet spot when you're seeing that. Studies do
2: show that the U.S. has historically, you know, on a scale of one to 10, where 10 is awesome sauce, on the democracy front, the United States has been a 10. And in the past five years, it's slipped to a five. Six is the lower boundary for democracy. So it has been said that the United States has been downgraded to an anocracy, right? Somewhere right. in the middle, right? Some sort of kind of illiberal democracy. The, the fact of the matter is, is that we are seeing more political violence. It seems that we are already seeing the kind of outcomes that a slip from a 10 to a 5 would tend to go with, be correlated with we've seen the storming of the Capitol, but we've also learned about thwarted attempts of political violence. And we've seen like an increasing number of people who are like building militias. But I think that when we look at people who are doing the work, are finding that there are not only people who are willing to do violence, but a significant number of people who would be willing to suggest that that violence is legitimate. And it's that number and that proportion of people who are really important here, that if they think that it's okay to do terrorist acts, taking over of capitals or, you know, kidnapping governors, we have a
0: real problem. You know, I think January 6th has to be seen in the context of Charlottesville, And in the context of what happened in Michigan and a variety of other events around the country. Now, you know, since January 6th, I guess we could say things have been pretty peaceful. But I don't think that tells us very much about what we're going to see as we get closer to these elections. And, you know, there's no doubt that the president is going to double down on getting his people to believe that this election was stolen.
2: So so there's physical violence. There's also threats of violence. Yeah, very good. And I'm thinking about school. Well, what's going on in the school boards? Yeah, not only kind of the behavior at school board meetings, but also threats to people on school boards. Yes, and Mm -hmm. threats to people on city councils, and threats to people who do work around you know elections. Yeah, I I... many of those people are choosing not to run again because they don't want themselves or their families to be at risk of political violence. So what that means is that there are people who are the kinds of folks that someone like Trump would want in those positions. And so we don't necessarily need actual violence to get the kind of outcomes that some, you know, if you're looking for a one party state, you know, yep, you, you yep. don't have to actually do violence to get the kinds of outcomes
0: you're looking for. There's a, a, a new book coming out that I hope we'll be able to talk about on the podcast about the harassment of the election officials that occurred in 2020 and is continuing to occur. And, and I appreciate your pointing out my lack of imagination because I think it afflicts so many of us, right? We don't really think that, that the U.S. is uh, liable to civil war because our concept of civil war is sort of stuck in the 1850s and 60s, right, with two huge opposing armies going at it in a muddy field. And, you know, Civil War scholars will tell you that's not what Civil War looks like in the 21st century. You need to have more imagination to understand. And, you know, I'm looking at January 6th or something and say, well, we haven't seen that again. So there's no violence and, and forgetting about or failing to see or recognize the importance of these other sorts of events that have been been going on the school board meetings in particular i, I thought were really disturbing because you just never really saw it even with hot conflictual issues right? i mean I, I studied for many years uh, the creationism evolution debates in schools and you just never saw this kind of thing even though these were you know really value-laden uh very emotional kinds of kinds of issues Civil War could
2: also be just lots of violence. It could be bombs. It could be domestic terrorism. It could be not these kind of depictions that we tend to cling on to. And again, by isolating the U.S. case from everyone else, we miss out on when we're actually seeing the democratic backsliding, if we actually come to see what a civil war looks like, when we actually come to see that we're an anocracy and not a democracy, it's hard to know because not enough, I think, of us have really a good grasp on the many permutations that these outcomes may look like because we're so focused on the way that we do things and that we couldn't ever be characterized similarly Mm -hmm. to another country or their political challenges.
0: Yeah. That's why I really appreciate work like Jim's, because I I think it helps us to really put what's going on here in in a more appropriate context. And it's hard not to look at January 6th from a racial angle, I think, in a couple of ways. I mean, one was just all of the purely racist symbolism Mm -hmm. that was there. Maybe not symbolism, but symbols, right? A noose, was erected in front of the Capitol. There were Confederate flags. You could go on and on about that. But also, I am still struck when I think back to that day that nobody was arrested when it was happening, that I, I just remember watching this, all these people leaving, and there wasn't a single arrest made. And you just could not help to think, would that have been the case if this were a black crowd? They could just go in and do this and then walk away, and the the, the FBI will call you later?
2: Yeah. So my family was driving from somewhere on January 6th, and so we're listening to all of this on the radio, and I turned to my husband and I go, hey, babe, let's go to Washington, D.C. with weapons and show up at the U.S. Capitol and expect to walk away alive.
0: Yeah. Did he think think that was a good idea?
2: <laughs> no, I mean, I just like it, it wouldn't have even occurred to me that you yeah, could yeah. do that
0: yeah. as a black person. And I think the this privilege was so built, built into, into what, what went, went on. on.
2: Yes, that, but also specifically, and just going back to something that Jim said about the rule of law, there are some people, right? Like, essentially, we had yeah, yeah. a president who said that he was above the law. I could go on Fifth Avenue and shoot a person and my supporters would still support me. We didn't see him impeached the first time. He doesn't get impeached the second time. There's no kind of legal ramification for what this person is doing. And so like the message essentially is that you all, people like you, are above the law and that anything that you do, you can get away with because it's for our version of the way this country should be run. And so I think it's really also important just to note again the kind of messages that are telegraphed to white Americans about the extent to which they will be held accountable for that kind of behavior. So I guess one last question perhaps is whether we can pull back from the abyss Trump's Mm -hmm. Republicans have led us to. I think we both know
0: that political elites have got to step in here and help to lead the way. And you just don't see it. I mean, they, they're like, yeah, tr- Biden's the president, but they they never talk about why this is so dangerous. They just flirt with it. And that would have to change, I would think. So anyway, this has been an interesting discussion, as I suspected it would be off of Jim's very uh, powerful new work. From uh, the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Candace Smith. Thanks for listening.
1: Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Andy Grant is our producer, and our editors are Jen Bortz, Chris Kugler, and Mark Stitzer. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. If you liked what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. Democracy Works is a proud member of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts focused on democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Learn more at democracygroup.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.